leads us to today, part six of the series, question five, which is the legacy question. Because here's what I need you to know. Every single one of you watching online and in the room, every one of us, we will leave a legacy. And it will last. People may not remember our name or remember the impact that we have, but they will live with the effect of our life on them, our kids, our grandkids, the world as a whole. The question is not, will you or won't you? The question is, what kind of legacy will you leave behind? Another way of framing this question, to put it in context with the series, is to ask the question, what story do I want to tell? The fifth and final question is, what story do I want to tell? Am I being honest with myself, really? Is there, is there attention that deserves my attention? What does love require me? What's the wise thing to do? And then number five, what story do I want to tell? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we all love a good story, don't we? Whether it's a novel, whether it's a comic book, whether it's a reel on Instagram or a TikTok, whether it's, it's a movie, here we are in a cinema, whether it's a theater production, we all love a good story. I wonder if I ask you, what's your favorite story? What's your favorite movie, favorite book? I wonder what comes to mind. One of my favorites is the uh, amazing play Les Miserables. And uh, myself and wife, we love this. Um, I'll, 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 tell you, I'll give you a confession, a funny confession, and then I'll tell you the story. I had no clue what this was about 10 years ago. Okay, no clue, typical guy, no idea, no clue at musicals. Uh, and, and one year I decided to bring my wife, when I came out in cinema, to go see it in the cinema. Because I thought, she likes it, somehow I knew she liked it. I said, okay, we'll buy tickets. We came here to the Odeon, and we're sitting there, and the opening scene happens, and there's Wolverine, right? Uh, except he's singing, which I didn't know he could do that, right? And that's a bit weird. And then there's Gladiator, and he's also singing. And they're kind of like singing to each other. I'm like, man, this is a really weird opening scene. You know what I'm saying? And after like 10 minutes, they're still singing, 15, 20, about 40 minutes. In, this is not a joke. 40 minutes into the movie, I turn to my wife and say, why is everyone singing all the time? And she's like, ah. I said, no, I'm serious. She goes, it's a musical. I went, oh, man. <laughs> Does that mean they're going to sing for the whole movie? Yes. Oh, man. And I was thinking, okay, hold on, two hours in, this is a th- almost a three-hour movie. Three hours of Wolverine and Gladiator singing to each other. What am I going to do? Well, thank God it's an amazing movie, and it made me like musicals. Um, so for, for my wife's birthday this year, I decided to take her to go see Les Mis in the theater. So on Thursday, night, we went out to the uh, Board Gosh Theater, and we watched Les Mis live, the actual theater production, and it was incredible. I mean, seeing it live with real actors, was just outstanding. But in this story, there's so much emotion, right? Because it, it's, it's about the misery of life. It's about how hard life is, how miserable life is, how unfair life is, how some make it and some don't, how those who oftentimes deserve to make it have their life robbed from them, while others who are complete scoundrels seem to get by and keep on escaping the guillotine. It's a great portrayal of the, of the injustice and the brokenness and the misery of life, and yet we love it. Why? Because we see ourselves in the characters. We see our emotions, our story. We see our life play 
played out to some degree and we've seen a hope in the main character. Somehow, maybe there'll be a chance for redemption, a chance for life, a chance for a future. And what struck me when I watched the movie, it was really moving to see how much God has brought in. But in the theater production in particular, it was incredible how many times, like Jean Valjean, his life is changed with the generosity of a bishop who, who convinces him that God has a plan for his life. How Javier, you know, the, 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 the antagonist who's the police officer, you can't get over this religious mindset that, that people can be set free and forgiven. He just can't compute this. So he ends up taking his life. How right at the very end of the story is a sense of redemption, sacrifice, and, and offering up one's life to save someone else. See, every great story, in my perspective, goes back to the scripture. goes back to the greatest story, the story of Jesus. We love great stories. We watch them, we listen to them, we read them, we pay for them, we consume them. The thing that we miss a lot of times is that when we're watching stories, when we're listening, when we're consuming, we're also creating stories. Because every single day, we don't often think this, we are creating the story of our lives. You right now, in this being in this room, you are creating the story of your life. Now again, I understand we don't think in these terms because we think current events. We think, what's the plan for today? We think, where am I going to eat? Who am I going to meet? What am I going to do? Some of us are thinking about tomorrow. Some of us are thinking about next week. But most of us, that's where we live. We live in the now. And a part of that is because we, we're so you know, caught up with life that we don't want to think too much in the past because it's full of regret. And we can't bear the uncertainty of the future. So we focus on what's in front of us. But the truth is this, the decisions that we're making in what seem like current events will one day be told as part of our story. What we celebrate now in someone's story, we talk about a grandfather or a grandmother or an uncle or an aunt or you know, so, something like Les Mis, is we're talking about now what is a story. But for, for those people in that moment, those were choices that they were making with no guaranteed outcome. Your life is a story. What seems like inconsequential choices will often prove to be very sequential chapters in our story later. I said again, what seems like this has no consequence. This is not attached. And then no one will know this or see this. Hold on a second. What seems like inconsequential choices will prove to be sequential chapters in our story later on. Again, I get that there's like a small percentage of choices that are made for us and against us that we couldn't choose and we'd no say in. That is true. Bad things happen to good people. And we can, we can choose to react or to respond to those things. But let's be honest, 95, 97, 98, 99% of the choices in our life are ours and ours alone. You write your life story one decision at a time. And the reason why, I'm, I'm, reason why I am talking about this is because I want you to write a good story. Like the reason why I do this and not something else is because I want to help people. I want to help you. I may not even know you, but I, 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 I love you in a cool way. Is that, is that cool? Everyone good? Yeah? Can I say that? Is that cool? The eggs is right there. There's also eggs right here. If you want to run, you can do it right now. All right? Most of you I love in a cool way. It's one or two I could... Anyway, and... Uh, and I want you to write, I want your kids and grandkids to be able to tell a good story. I want to help you make better decisions so you can have a few regrets, so you can make, a, 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 what would you call it, an avenue, make a story, make a path 
that's only worth remembering, but is even worth celebrating. Every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your life story. Every decision you make has an outcome, a consequence, and a result. Now, in the moment, it might seem inconsequential. It may seem minuscule. It may seem like it has no great impact. But every decision we make, good or bad, has an outcome, a consequence, and a result. The question we're asking today's message, we close out the series, is what kind of story do you want to tell? What kind of, because if you could get a, a, a grasp, if you could get a vision for your life and work back and say, this is the kind of story I want to tell. It doesn't mean things will always happen according to plan. Like if you want to say, if you want to make a decision, I want to have a faithful marriage, yes? I want to be able to get to the end of my days and break off the, the family tradition in your family where marriages f- fall apart. Okay, doesn't mean everything's going to go well in your marriage. doesn't mean there will be difficult days for you and your spouse. There will be. But the fact is you have a goal in mind. You want to get to the end, one wife, one life, yes? So to do that, you're going to make better decisions in the moment so you don't live with more regret later on. What story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell to your children one day? What story do you want to tell maybe to your grandchildren, if God graces it, one day? What story do you want to tell your children and grandchildren when it comes to how you did relationships? You know, I mean, did it go well? Did you, did you, did you go with everyone? Did you go with no one? Were you wise? Did you ask what does love require of me? Did you take what wasn't yours? Did you lie and deceive people into relationship? Were you always using and abusing to to fix you, try to fix the hole in you? What's the story you're going to tell of how you met your spouse? Oh yeah, boat plastered off her head in a nightclub. What a great story. What story are you going to tell your kids and grandkids about your relationships? About your finances? You know, when it comes to your financial life, how 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 did you get around that? I mean, were you a good worker? Were you honest? Did you tell the truth? Did you work hard for what you earned? Or did you lie, cheat, and steal? Did you, did you usurp your, your, your responsibility in being a good father, a good mother, a good parent, and have your kids end up with nothing because rather than doing what you're supposed to do, you took care of yourself or your own interests in a very selfish way and blew it all on gambling or drinking or addiction? What story do you want to tell morally? Can you tell a moral story? Do you have any shred of morality in your life that you can say, listen, I'm not perfect, I didn't do all right, but I had these values, man. I had these values. And yeah, one time I did this, and yeah, one time, but my heart was always in the right place, striving for the right thing. That was spiritually. One of the biggest crises Ireland is facing in the next 20 years is a vacuum of spirituality. Now, if we live in the present moment, we can think, oh, spirituality is overrated. We have outgrown our need for a spirituality. Well, two things. First of all, when you look at social science, that is crazy because there's this, there's this part of, of, of our humanity that requires a connection with the transcendent. Now, however you want to explain that, it's up to you, but it's important and it's there and it's scientific. Second of all, like we, this secular Ireland we're living in is like 15 years old. For thousands of years, people have lived their life shaped by some form of spirituality. For us to turn around and say, we don't need it anymore, is the highest form of hubris and arrogance. And I can see a train, and I can see a wall, and eventually those things are going to collide. And by the time that happens, we will be the grandparents. 
Because we're the experiment right now in Ireland. We will be the grandparents telling those kids and grandkids when it came to faith, when it came to the things of God, when it came to the things of church and life and values and tradition. Nothing. It's already happening. There's a spiritual awakening happening in this nation. And it's happening amongst young people. And many of you are in this room right now. God is doing something. And you will have a good story to tell your children. Because it's not cool right now. It's not easy to be a Christ follower. It's not in. It's hard to say, I follow Jesus. I tell the truth. I don't cut corners. I don't sleep around. I don't have the view the world has on certain things. Because my life is built on scripture. It's hard to be a Christian. But one day you'll be able to tell your kids and grandkids, whatever they believe, I didn't compromise. I stood my ground in my generation that you have the option for a legacy. What are you going to tell your kids? And guys, what kind of story do you want to tell? I imagine, like me, you'd like to tell the whole story, right? Without skipping, editing, lying about some of the chapters. It's one of the reasons why I love the scriptures, the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, it doesn't shy back. It doesn't just make up. It doesn't just keep the good stuff. All the bad stuff is there too. That's a bad way to start a world religion. By showing the bad side of all the main characters. And the only reason why they would be there is because they're true. Because there's no, even in movies, we don't want to see the bad side of characters. We want to see the good side. we'll, We'll temporarily allow a character to slip but to slip too far, they're no longer a hero or a heroine. Because we're looking for some sense of, you know, uh, ideology in them, that they're able to overcome things that we can't overcome ourselves. But the Bible tells the truth. And one day we want to be able to tell our story and tell the truth. And yeah, maybe there's some dark moments, some valley moments, as it says in Psalm 23. But we want to live a life that doesn't involve skipping and editing and lying. Now listen, I don't be too hard on us because this, 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 this is hardwired into us. Like when you think about how do we get so hooked on making bad decisions? Again, I've tried to bring in as much psychology as I could over the series to kind of bring some science to this. But there's a thing called cognitive bias. Another word for it is focalism. And this is very simple. But basically what happens is, is when we decide we want something, we desire something, we convince ourselves we need something. Go back to week one, the whole idea of being your own best salesperson. Literally what happens is we lose our minds. We literally, momentarily, lose our minds. And there's all sorts of theories for why focalism exists. Most scientists and psychologists say it's a hunting thing. Like if you're in a forest, yeah, and you're trying to shoot something to eat it because you're going to die. Okay, sorry if you're a vegan. This is how people live for most of history. And uh, unless you want to shoot a plant, in which case the analogy still works. And... uh, Someone dies in the day, okay? Someone's going to get their, you know. So, so you're in the forest, you're hunting, and, and like there's birds, and there's caterpillars, and there's leaves blowing, and there's all sorts of things. But you can't focus on everything at once and shoot something. You have to have the ability to shut everything out to focus on that one thing. Because that one thing is going to be your dinner, which means you're going to die tonight of starvation. And so many think that that's why we have this mechanism. The problem is, is look around. Not many of us are hunting anymore. Our focalism is reduced to McDonald's. Do you want the extra large or a medium? Hmm, extra large. Like our focalism is reduced to like buying stuff online, right? The need for survival is gone. And now it's, it's, it's basically comes alive when it comes to consumers. I'm not against, against buying things. I'm just saying 
that there's a scientific reason for all this. But the problem is we're not aware of it. And so we think, as we talk ourselves, we think we're talking ourselves into a good idea. But like I said back in week one, we never have to talk ourselves into a good idea. We always try to talk ourselves out of one. Oh, here's all the reasons for why actually I need to change my mind on this. Here's all, the, here's all the logical, practical reasons for why this isn't what God said. Here's all the reasons for why I should go this way. See, we, we try to talk ourselves out of wisdom. We temporarily lose our minds. And it seems like, that would be a, a, a gender stereotype, this is more common for guys rather than ga- gals. Which is probably why we're always chasing stuff like footballs and rugby balls and golf balls and pool balls and whatever's basically round and going around. We just have this thing where it's like, you know, oh my gosh, you know what I'm saying? Again, don't want to stereotype, but it seems to be, to be the reality. And what happens is, is this creates a kind of a psychosis, it creates a thinking mechanism where what we're always evaluating is stock options as opposed to story outcomes. How will this help me achieve what I want? How will this get me to where I want, with who I want, the way I want, versus how will this sound in 20 years' time? We're always trying to increase our stock, increase our options, increase our prosperity, whether it be socially, financially, uh, academically, relationally. But very often, or little time, do we ever stand back and go, how will this sound when I tell my kids in 20 years? I didn't study well in college. I was out every night of the week. And then one night a term, I stay up all night and cram my brain with as much knowledge as possible and drink as much Red Bull as possible in the absolute hope that there's a God in heaven who would show me grace and help me pass the exam. Listen to me. I don't point the finger. I was there. I was in Bible college. I mean, come on. How bad? How terrible am I? I'm saying, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. Okay, okay, four hours, okay. You know, regurgitate, it, regurgitate. It. I pass, yay! Is that the, is that, don't, don't, don't look in my teenager's eyes and say, listen, son, the first three months don't really matter. Look, just cram as much. The night before, I'll buy you six cans of Red Bull. Cram as much as you can into you and then go for it. Because the standard in this house is pass. Right? We don't want a story. We want to say, I did my best. I applied myself. And hopefully, if you do it right, when you apply yours, you can do better than me. That every parent wants, you can do better than me. See, it comes down to this idea that what is a red flag moment should not be interpreted as a green light moment. Right? Because so often, we, f- we have these choices, and it seems like it's a green light, like, go, go for it. But in fact, it's a red flag moment. Don't do it, because that decision is shaping the story of your life. Don't press play. Press pause. Again, what do these five questions give us? They give us a moment. They give us a grid. They give us the gift of pressing pause momentarily to, to be able to ask these questions. Man, am I being honest with myself really about this relationship? I feel this tension about not telling the truth to my boss. Should I ignore it? What should I do? You know, I know that what we're doing there is wrong. What does love require of me? As I take stock of the whole situation, what's the wise thing to do? And as I evaluate those four questions, and I step back from the moment, step out of the moment, out of the current affairs, I ask the question, what story do I want my kids to tell about me? about this moment, this chapter in my life, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. 
See, if we, can, if, we can, if we can do this, I can guarantee we will make better decisions and we will live with fewer regrets. Because the gravitational pull of sin, and again, I say sin, but that's what it is. There's this, there's this nature in us, this tendency. Why is it so hard to eat good food? You're laughing because it's true. Why is it so hard to do the right thing? Why is the easy thing always the wrong thing? What is with everything with that? Like, why, is, why is that the case? Why isn't our default mode good and healthy? Why do we go for the Kit Kat, not the apple? Like, what is with that? And it's because there's a force at work in the world around us. Whether you believe it or not, it's there. And if you don't believe it, give me another explanation for it. We call it sin. And the gravitational pull of sin is pride, temptation, and entitlement. I'm the man. I'm the best. I deserve it. Entitlement. Oh, this, even though it's wrong, even though it's not good, even though it won't look good in my resume later on, even though it's probably going to be edited out my story when I sit on the campfire and tell my grandkids, I want it. I deserve it. Because I'm worth it. Right? It sounds good in the moment, right? It sounds so true. It sounds exactly like everything our world is telling us right now. And then we go and we do it. Whatever it is, and instantaneously we feel regret and guilt and shame. And we have this crisis. What do I do with this? And again, what does the world say? Oh, just bury it, hide it. No one needs to know. You deserved it. You work hard. You didn't have everything in life. People had more. You had less. It's not that bad. You didn't murder anyone. This is murder. It wasn't like mass genocide. I mean, come on, just one person you killed. It's incredible, our ability to talk ourselves out of responsibility. But no matter how much we bear that thing, no matter how much distance and time and geography that we get away from, we keep coming back to it, don't we? We're chained to it, aren't we? And we can't ignore it, can we? And we lie in bed and no one's there. We think about that choice. We think about those choices. And we wonder, man, is there any way to atone for my sin? And of course, the good news that we find in Scripture, the good news we find in Jesus, is that not only does Jesus not judge us for our sin, but he offers to forgive us. And it's only him that can permanently, completely, and eternally solve our guilt and our shame. But you can take a man out of Carlo, but can you take Carlo out with the man? Because Jesus can save us in a moment. But what about the wisdom that, we, that is required to make better decisions? God wants us to be wise. God wants us to live the way that we don't have to hide and edit and lie and bury. But that we can look back with gratitude. Even when we fail, we can look back with gratitude. Because we were honest. We walked with integrity, with wisdom, with love. We owned up to our errors. Just the other day, I was talking with someone, and I have this rule where, I, where if, if I feel like I've offended someone yet, yeah, because that can happen in, in a conversation. We're having, we're having like an argument. Like a, uh, it was a professional argument or something. It was a difference of opinion. It was quite controlled, and it wasn't heated. But after the conversation, I just couldn't help feeling that I was too strong. I just was too strong. And, and my rule of thumb is that if, if after a few days I'm still thinking about it, even they, though they haven't said anything, I'm going to phone them and say, listen, I'm still thinking about it. I want to say sorry. I don't know if you are. And oftentimes, they're not. You understand what I'm saying? But it's a mechanism that I have. That if I, three or four days after, still, I still feel like something wasn't right, 
better off to be honest, better off to take responsibility, better off to own and apologize than justify and bury it. And of course, those conversations are never easy because you have to be vulnerable and, and own up to it and step into that space. But I've always been greeted with grace. And, oh my gosh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. It's a good way to live. You don't have to look over your shoulder because what's behind you, there's nothing to hide because you walk with those five questions. Consider your story. Consider, and again, you know, one of the greatest stories is Joseph's story in the Old Testament. Joseph... If you don't know Joe's story, it's an incredible story. Joseph, we're told, was, was a son uh, of one of the uh, ancient biblical patriarchs. And he was a son of favor. He was loved more than his brothers, which is always a bad parenting. You don't love one kid more than another. That's just for free. That's never going to end well. Don't have favorites. Tell your children they're all your favorites. Okay? Do like I do. I tell my oldest son, you're my favorite oldest son. I'm my youngest. You're my favorite youngest son. And you're my favorite second son. And you're my favorite now third son. Unless I have another son, which means then you're not the third anymore, you're the fourth. That happened to be last year. My youngest son's on my third, so I just changed all that. Like, like, you know, don't have favorites. It's bad, it's a bad, it's bad to have favorites. But in this story, that, that favoritism caused resentment amongst Joseph's brothers. And very quickly, and I'm gonna fly through as fast as I can. There's, and again, because it's like, I think it's like 10 chapters in Genesis, and it's an amazing story. We've done a whole series on Joseph's story. But to fly through and to use the language of story, let's look very quickly at Joseph's story and ask the question, what, what, do, what do we see in Joseph's life? What does Scripture show us as an example for how we can make better decisions for regrets? Well, scene one is called the tragedy. We're told in Genesis 37, 18 to 20, that Joseph was sent out one day to go check on his older brothers, okay? And so... They saw him a distance. Here comes the dreamer. Verse 20, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. That's a lot of hate for your brother. I mean, I'm the oldest of four. I have four. I've been around a lot of family. I've seen mean things said. I've seen things thrown. I've seen fists clenched. I've seen all sorts of things. I haven't seen 10 brothers conspire to kill the 11th. That's how much jealousy and hatred was in their hearts. But look at their choice for a second. Let's forget Joseph. Look at their choice. They're choosing to do this. And as they're deliberating, they don't see it as a story. They see it as a current moment, yeah? They see an opportunity to deal with this little, this little brat. But what they don't realize is that by killing him and by throwing him in a cistern, which of course, they don't, they don't actually do that in the end. What they do is they decide to sell him into slavery as a better option, right? But either way, what they're choosing to do is they're choo- choosing to become liars for life. They're choosing to, because every time someone asks, what happened to your brother? They're going to have to lie for the rest of their life. And if I can encourage you one thing in this series, don't make a decision that requires you to be a liar for the rest of your life. It's very hard to keep an act up for a while. It's very hard to keep it up for a lifetime. Joseph's birth weren't just committing a great atrocity against him, a great tragedy by, 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 obviously they wanted to kill him, but later on selling him. But they were creating a great act of misjudgment and unwise is why because they're becoming liars now ultimately joseph is the victim here 
And Joseph's story is one of, you know, victimology, that he could be a victim for life. Like, none of this was his fault. He's just going to do what his father asked him to do. And like him, some of us, we feel that this is not our fault. The situation, the, 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 uh, the present moment that we're in, the problems that we're facing, these things aren't our fault. They, we, we didn't choose these things. They're happening to us. You know, life, like, like for us, life had made Joseph a victim. But Joseph refused to be a victim for life. He, he, he refused to allow the choices made against him to control the outcome of his life. And so the story goes, he's sold into slavery. He's purchased by a guy called Potiphar. Potiphar, we're told, was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh in Egypt. So he's basically human trafficked out of uh, his homeland. He's sold as a slave. This guy called Potiphar, he has a, he has a decision to make in Potiphar's house. He can... He can Fold his arms and he can be angry, upset and down. He can complain about how this wasn't his fault, wasn't his choice. He's a victim. He can phone the UN. He can do whatever he wants. Or he can choose to make the most of a situation. And Joseph made a choice to decide his way forward. This was the story that Joseph was decided. He wasn't going to allow what happened to him to decide who he would become. He was going to take control of the narrative. And decide his way forward. So we're told that he worked hard, he worked diligently, he worked honestly. Eventually, he was promoted to the point that he was second in command of the entire household. Again, when I say household, don't think about three bedrooms semi detached in Blanchetown, okay? Think about a mass villa with hundreds of servants on hundreds of acres. I mean, he was really, really successful in that. Scene two, then, of course, we have the travesty. And the travesty in scene two as soon as it appears on the screen here. Ta-da! Is Potiphar had a wife. And she was bad news, people, because Potiphar's wife really was into Joseph in a way that wasn't healthy, wasn't moral, and wasn't really wise. And basically, she tried to seduce Joseph into an affair with her. But Joseph did something very wise. Joseph rehearsed his story out loud. He walked around, I'm not sure if he felt temptation, surely he did. He walked around saying, how can I do this against Paul? How will I apologize? What will I say? How will I explain to my kids? What will I say to God one day? Joseph rehearsed his story out loud. Verse 8, it says, he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? See, Joseph asked the question, you know, when it comes to this temptation, am I being honest with myself, really? Is there a tension that needs my attention? And what does love require of me? Loving my master isn't committing adultery with his wife. And what does love require of me from God's perspective? See, Joseph had gotten to where he was through hard work and God's help. And he had the humility to recognize that. That it was his hard work with God's help that got him to where he was. And Joseph had a choice to make. Joseph was living in a moment, not, thinking of, not necessarily thinking of his future, but he recognized that this decision would later become a story. And he's asking himself, what kind of story do I want to tell? Your husband 
gave me an opportunity I never dreamed would come my way. So here's story one. So I took advantage of his trust and had an affair with his wife. What a great story. Ta-da! Here's how you got here, son. your, Your mother's husband was a great and generous man. And gave me an opportunity that was a once in a lifetime thing. So to repay him, I took advantage of his trust. I lied, deceived, cheated, slept with his wife, who's your mother. And that's how you came into the world. Or, story two could be, your husband gave me an opportunity I never dreamed would come my way. So I was faithful to him and to the God who's been with me from the beginning. If you don't know the story, Joseph chose story number two. He chose the better story. Now, in this moment, it didn't seem like that was necessarily the best choice because even though he did the right thing, as often happens to us, Joseph did the right thing despite making the better choice. Things did not turn out right because the reward for Joseph's honesty was Potiphar's wife lied and claimed that he tried to rape her. And of course, a slave's word versus a lady of the house's word, he was arrested and thrown in the dungeon. Again. Again, Joseph in chains. But again, Joseph was rehearsing a story. Am I going to be a victim? Am I going to react or will I respond? Where's God in all this? Even though I might feel angry that things didn't work out the way I wanted, God is with me and somehow if I lean into him, he can help me through this. And Joseph found strength in God. And even in the prison, he prospered. He asked the question, what does love require of me? And he served the prisoners and he served the prison guard to the point where, surprise, surprise, Joseph was promoted and basically ran. He basically was the head administrative official of the prison. And there's this long story of how eventually uh, these two prisoners had, a, had two dreams. And anyway, it turns out Joseph had this amazing gift that God gave him to interpret dreams. And fast forward to scene number three, the turning point. We're told that as Joseph was in prison, by the way, for years, not hours, I could do prison for God for four hours, four weeks, four months, four years. 14 years? Uh, what's the adoption again? For years. Until one day Pharaoh had a nightmare. And we're told that none of Pharaoh's officials or magicians or astronomists, you couldn't wonder, none, none, scientists, none of his, of his crew, none, no one in his, in his court had the ability to interpret the dream. And of course, one of the fellows in the court was one of the fellows who was previously in the prison. And remember Joseph. And so I know a fella who's good at that. His name is Joseph. And so in a moment, all of a sudden, Joseph's circumstances changed. As he was pulled out of prison, he was sh- you know, cleaned, he was shaven, given proper clothes, and standing face to face with the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph does something crazy. He says, well, I can't tell you to answer the dream. <gasps> what? But God can. Oh, I'm not going to take credit for this. I know my source. I know where my gifts and strengths come from. 
If I, if I play a music instrument well, if I can sing well, if I can dance well, if I'm intelligent, I know where it comes from. It comes from God. I can't do it, but God can. Notice Joseph's language. Joseph was on his journey of humility. In the beginning, he's great. And everyone's going to recognize his great, greatness. But now it's, no, no, God is great. And everyone will recognize his greatness. And so Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph's able to interpret it. Basically, seven years, there's going to be lots of, you know, um, prosperity, you know, the grain stores are going to grow. Grain was huge in that time of the world because bread was the primary sustenance for life. You know, grain, you know, bread. Everyone's like, hooray, what a great story. But he then says, there's also going to be seven years of famine where you know, there's going to be no grain in the land. People are going to starve. Da, 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 da. So, you know, and so which, that's the interpretation of the dream. But then Joseph goes one step further. He does something you should never do when you're standing before the most powerful man in the world. He offers unsolicited advice. He then says, and by the way, here's what you should do. And he gives Pharaoh a, a kind of five-point plan for how he, can, how he can apply the interpretation that God has given him to the vision. Because only did God give him the ability to interpret the vision, God also gave him wisdom. And of course, you can imagine the gasp of the court, like, who is this guy? This Hebrew slave giving advice to the king. But in verse 38, chapter 41, it says, So Pharaoh said to him, Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Which is an incredible statement because Pharaoh, if you remember, is, is supposed to be God. But Pharaoh, the small G God, and Pharaoh recognized the big G God in Joseph and said, in this man is the Spirit of capital G God. Then he said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning. No one as wise. How do we become wise? We see danger. We apply the five questions over and over. We ask the question, what kind of story do I want to tell? Joseph, even though bad things happened to him, even though he was a victim of life, wasn't a victim for life, and asked good questions, which led to better decisions, which meant he had fewer regrets, to the point where the most powerful man in the world said about him and said over him and said to him, you are discerning and you are wise. And because of this, and Pharaoh is a very practical man, you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are submit to yours. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph, in one moment, was taken from prison, taken from the treachery of a dungeon, and made the Taoiseach of Egypt. I mean, he was literally made the Taoiseach. He was the prime minister of Egypt. I mean, talk about a promotion of promotions. Maybe that's where we should find our next Taoiseach. Go to a prison. Find someone who knows. Anyway. Scene five, the, the fourth. Fourth and final scene. All right, everything happens as Joseph says. The famine comes, we're told. All these years with no grain. People are starving. Word gets out all over the world that Egypt has grain. So people en masse in caravans head to Egypt looking to trade whatever they could to buy grain to eat. Well, guess who comes down to see if there's grain in Egypt? Joseph's brothers, everybody. Wow, how life has a way of bringing stuff back around. And of course, they don't recognize him because at this point he's in his mid-30s and they would have sold him into slavery at the age of about 17. And obviously he would have walked like an Egyptian and talked like an Egyptian. And he would have danced like an Egyptian. So he was unrecognizable to them. And there's this kind of sequence of events Joseph goes through but eventually in chapter 45, he can't receive more. He finally tells them who he is. He said in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, 
the one you sold into Egypt. Now pause. Can you imagine the terror? And they've been liars for life. Always wondering, did we make the right decision? Should we have done it? No one will ever know. Will everyone find out? And standing in front of them is the evidence of their lies. They're about to be found out in a very spectacular way. But not only is he alive, he is now the second most powerful man in the world. And with a snap of his fingers, off with the heads of those ten brothers. And in a sense, you could say, well, Joseph will be duly justified in that culture doing that. But he didn't. Verse 5. And now, don't be distressed, not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. What? Because it was to save lives that God, that God, that God sent me ahead of you. I thought I was a victim and my story was robbed from me. But God redeemed my story. And God used my life. And God has positioned me and given purpose to my pain that people's lives might be saved. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God... How much does Joseph mention himself? Nowhere. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Here's the point of the story. Joseph wasn't anything like his brothers. He didn't react. He wasn't tempted. He wasn't entitled. And he wasn't full of pride. Joseph chose to respond. Joseph hit pause. Joseph understood the difference between a green light and a red flag. Joseph went through the questions. I mean, I don't know if you had these questions, but went through a series of questions, ultimately asking, what is the story I want to tell? Joseph, when life put him in difficult moments, he decided on a story that was worth telling. He decided on a story that was worth remembering. And he decided on a story that is worth celebrating. Joseph is a great example to all of us today. That our decisions aren't inconsequential moments in our lives, choices, but they're actually sequential parts of the chapters of our story. The gravitational pull, my friends, of life, of sin, of, of all these things, pride, temptation, and entitlement. I'm asking you today as we close the series, consider your story. Consider your story. When you don't know what to do, stop, hit pause, think. Don't react, respond. And ask yourself the question. And if you can't, ask out loud. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want my children, my grandchildren to tell? What story do I want to tell? Again, to close it off, Proverbs 27, verse 12. The wise, the discerning like Joseph, see danger. And avoid it. But fools keep on going, get in trouble. Come on, am I being honest with myself, really? Is there attention that deserves my attention? What does love require of me? What's the wise thing to do? What story do I want to tell? As we close off this series, and I pray in just a moment, I want to encourage you with a couple of closing thoughts. Number one, your story is not over. And maybe you're like me. There's stuff in your past that you wish wasn't there, but it is. 
They think, well, if I can't delete it, if I can't tip exit, anyone from the tip exit generation, if I can't tip exit away, what solution do I have? Well, the good news is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, not only does he take our sin away, but he redeems it. And all of a sudden, what the enemy meant for good, God supernaturally turns. The enemy meant for harm, sorry. God supernaturally turns into good. God can use for good. Your pain can have a redemptive purpose. Your story, the negative part, your regret, if handed over to God, if redeemed by God, if given to God, if surrendered to God, can be used to help so many others. God is not finished with you yet. Your story is not done. Maybe today, as we step into this new year, is a time to turn the page of a new chapter. Part two of your story. A life with God. Second thing I want to encourage you about is this. Is that although so much of this is nuanced, it's so hard to know exactly in the moment, this is why God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're told in the John's Gospel that He is a counselor, an advisor, an encourager. That when we find ourselves stuck in a moment, not knowing what to do, we can pray, God, help me. And the craziest thing happens. He helps. He helps. Because He speaks. And the question is never, is God speaking? The question is, what is God speaking? And am I listening? And the third and final thing is this. My heart and my desire for you as a pastor of this church is that you would live a great, healthy, long, fruitful, God-honoring life. But your life is not the final few chapters, the end. Your life is now. This is your life. I don't know how old you are, how young you are, your story. Wherever you are in the spectrum, this is your life now. Take control. Take charge. Take responsibility. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Because God wants you to be wise. And God wants you to live life and life to the full with and in and through Him. And no matter who you are, what you're going through, if you just put your trust in Him today, if you put your story in His hands, like Joseph, only God. I believe that God can lead you into His extraordinary purpose for your life.